hot, humid weather in Miami in August of 1985 is where I met Jesus Garcia. This is John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender who looks more like a young Robert Redford than anyone's idea of a typical public defender. Mattis's very first felony defendant is Jesus Garcia, a Cuban-American who's been charged with possessing a machine gun and a silencer. Now, Jesus has arrived at Mattis's office with a pile of documents in his hands to talk about the case. And what he says won't just change Mattis's life, it'll also change the course of American history. Mr. Garcia showed up in those cramped offices of the federal defenders. So, as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. And all I wanted to do was figure out what's the defense to having a machine gun and silencer. And he laid out to me that he believed he was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. And I'm rolling my eyes. But there he has all these documents. He says, check it out yourself. Check it out yourself. And the very first thing I did as he left, I see these papers and scribblings on notepads. Colonel Douglas Menarchik. So I call up Colonel Douglas Monarchic, whatever, whoever he was. The phone rings, and it's answered, National Security Council, Monarchic's office. And I hung it up. I slammed it down. I was like, this is a bad joke. Who has a phone number to a private listing in the White House? And that was the start of a five-year saga that drew me in to something I had no interest in getting involved in. But once I got pulled in, I couldn't get out. My name is Jack Bryan. I'm a documentary filmmaker and television producer. Generally, my work focuses on the cross-section between true crime, politics, and espionage. I first met John Mattis in 2017 when I interviewed him about his work investigating the 2016 election. After the interview, he told me the story of the first time he got pulled into a political scandal. So when you do the work that I do, a big part of your job is talking to former spies and politicians and to researchers and journalists who cover corruption and international crime. So you end up hearing a bunch of really wild stories about overseas adventures and secret deals and you know, like anything, you just kind of get used to it after a while. But sitting there at lunch with Mattis, I knew this was the most amazing story I had ever heard. What I didn't realize was that in the years to come, knowing Mattis's story would become essential in explaining the threats to American democracy today. So while I'll be back at the end of this episode, for now, I'd like to hand you off to my fellow producer and our narrator, John Cryer. Thanks, Jack. I'm John Cryer, and this is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. It's the early 1980s, and Miami is the United States' biggest hub for narcotics transportation from Central and South America. 70% of all the marijuana and cocaine coming into America passes through South Florida. This is the era of the cocaine cowboys. They call them the cocaine cowboys. Yesterday, they struck busy Dadeland shopping mall shortly after two, spraying the parking lot with bullets. 
The Miami-Colombian connection is 80% of a $20 billion annual cocaine business. The drug trade touches every part of life in Miami. Sam Smith was a Florida judge until the FBI caught him selling marijuana. In Miami, one-third of the Dade County Homicide Squad is under indictment for protecting a major drug dealer. And the state's top law enforcement officer is wondering who's running the state, the government or the drug smugglers. And as drug money pours in, Miami booms. According to experts at the Organized Crime Bureau of the Dade County Public Safety Department, drug smuggling through South Florida may well be the state's most profitable enterprise. And with the drugs come guns making Miami the murder capital of America as well. The murder rate has shot up 70%. The head of Miami's Police Benevolent Association has warned that the criminal justice system can no longer protect the public. Now, if you're looking for a rundown of what gangs and cartels were in power at what time, there are a bunch of really good documentaries, books, and films on this topic. Uh, Scarface is about Miami during this period. But this story is different. This is the story of what happens when that world of Scarface and cocaine and arms smuggling collides with the White House and almost takes down a presidency in the process. And so we begin as John Mattis moves to Miami in the summer of 1981. It was a city out of control. It was August. <laughs> no one should be forced to go to Miami, Florida in August but I was going to go to law school. So there I was, and I found a small place in Coconut Grove, which was the bohemian section of Miami, had a street that was like Rodeo Drive, Commodore Plaza, with cocktail bars, you know, high-end stores, and a lot of people hanging out in the sidewalk cafes, enjoying their dime. And so we went there to have a beer and I'm sitting down and I looked out and the man had fallen down the street. No one stood up. So I stood up and walked into the street to try to help him go over to the curb when I thought he had a pink shirt on. And I tried to help him up and his head tilted and he was gurgling because his throat had been slit. This is four o'clock in the afternoon. And then I realized his shirt wasn't pink it was just full of punctures. So clearly he had been stabbed or shot, but he was still alive. So I, I'm yelling, call 911, call an ambulance of the hundreds there sitting enjoying their afternoon cocktails. Not a single person got up, not a single person. And when the ambulance finally got there, the ambulance driver said they were gonna take a slow route back. So that was my, first encounter with sort of the tone of what I should expect in Miami, Florida. And that was what Miami, Florida turned out to be for me for the next decade. Now, this is not a world that Mattis is prepared for, and he's not exactly the kind of guy you'd expect to end up in the middle of this. Mattis was born in Connecticut in 1950. My father was a minister. My mother was an English professor. My Parents were civil rights activists, very, very much engaged uh, in social justice movements. And so it was part of our DNA. They took me to open housing marches, I want to say in 1964, encouraged me to be involved in politics. I think the first door I knocked on was for Eugene McCarthy, 
in the spring of 1968 when I was 17. Mattis goes to college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison at a time when the city has a thriving student radical movement, unified by their support for civil rights and their opposition to the war in Vietnam. We were in a bar and my friend was upset and he said, you know, one of us ought to run for county supervisor and throw these bums out. And I was like, really? Anyway, we flipped the coin and I lost. So I was gonna have to run. I didn't know anything about county government much less who I was running against. Turned out it was the treasurer of the Democratic Party. But I ran, and somehow I won. As John takes office, he's part of a movement of student radicals winning elections for local offices in the late 60s and early 70s in Madison. Once John is elected to office, he gets the reputation of someone who won't stop digging until he gets to the bottom of a problem. One of the things I found when I was elected, I was looking at just a directory of employees and found so many people had the same last name. And I asked one of the administrators and he says, well, that's because of nepotism. They're all hiring their relatives. It should be illegal. You weren't getting the most qualified. It was all who had the inside track. Government hiring shouldn't be that way. And at the same time, I was in graduate school doing research. I had to do these in-depth projects, researching communication effects, physiological effects of advertising, connecting threads, and seeing if there's a pattern. Having that experience really prepared me to do the year-long investigation into government nepotism. Taking all those family trees of all of these hundreds and hundreds of people, I exposed it. I, working with some people inside government, came up with the concept that if you applied for a job and were qualified, you then went into a lottery. And it totally undid decades of nepotism. And myself and the administrator who came up with it actually won a national award. So that was really the first time I ever used my research skills to make something happen in government. Moved on and became elected as a city alderman. There was even some talk in the local press of Mattis running for mayor. I decided to go to law school, and I got a really attractive offer at the University of Miami. And so, out of the cold Wisconsin winter, moved to Miami, Florida in 1981. This is David Tucker, a Miami public defender who worked with Mattis in the 80s. We were both new assistant federal public defenders from the 1980s, the height of the time that the cartels were using the Caribbean for transportation. Miami Vice, we were in the middle of Miami Vice. Every single day there was somebody getting shot or it's crazy stuff, okay? Yeah, they'd arrest a boat coming in with 5,000 pounds of cocaine and we'd have to do pretrial detention hearings until like eight, nine o'clock at night sometimes. We got a very small office. Uh, we did not have the funding that the U.S. Attorney's Office has. Even like, I used to have to go into the executive court office to get my pens. And John had an office across from mine, and we became friends. 100%, I could sense he was, he was different, extraordinary, uh, immediately. So uh, it was a very strange but very exciting time. And, you know, at some point, dangerous. And this is the world Mattis steps into as he meets his first felony defendant, a Miami Cuban named Jesus Garcia, you know, the guy he was talking about in the introduction. Felony arraignment is where I met Jesus Garcia in August of 1985. Dozens and dozens of people brought into federal court. 
and they're all manacled and they're all then brought out of the holding cell into where it looks like a jury box in the arraignment area. So there are all these people in khaki, of course, and they call out the names and I'm given a file. I don't know who the person is. So, hey, Suze Garcia, and I open the file up and man raises his hand and I go over. And I said, Mr. Garcia, you understand that these are five-year charges. You can go to prison for a long period of time. And he goes, don't worry, don't worry. What I found out as I'm standing there requesting a bond was he actually is a jailer working for Dade County, jailing people. But I sort of brushed it off, arraigned him, and that was it. And the next thing I knew, he had bonded out. Unlike most clients who are reluctant to come back and don't get involved in their case, he immediately called and wanted an appointment like two days later to tell me who he was. And he showed up in my windowless, cramped office in the federal courthouse with his wife sitting there. He lays out this pile of documents and insisted on sitting down and walking me through what he saw as his role. This is an interview with Jesus Garcia from 1986. This is a very dangerous game. We load him, 16 machine guns, motor tubes, 50 caliber, small cannon, a lot of ammo. Customs sort of knew about it. A lot of people knew about it. It wasn't something hidden. Of course I didn't believe him. I expected the client to give me a story. But please, give me a more plausible story than I'm working for the CIA. It was too cartoonish but that he wanted to talk about the cause. So I listened, and he talked about how, as a Cuban-American, he felt a pull to support freedom fighters and the people fighting against communism in Nicaragua. But he was spinning this story out as rather matter-of-fact, the same way you and I might talk about engaging in some kind of hobby his hobby was arms trafficking to Central America. I sort of shrugged, and, and then he started dialing in on, John, you have to appreciate everyone here in Florida is helping them. We're all getting together. We're helping provide them guns, fuel. And I thought to myself, well, you really shouldn't be because it's sort of illegal. The Boland Amendment had passed, so this is an important point, and the reason why, if what Jesus is saying is true, it potentially makes this a massive political scandal. Okay, to step back for a minute, just about everything you're going to hear about in this series is happening during or because of a conflict that largely defined the last half of the 20th century. Widely known as the Cold War, a term which was coined by English writer George Orwell to describe combating countries locked in a nuclear standoff, the whole thing started almost immediately after World War II. The United States, Western Europe, and the Russian-led Soviet Union had been dependable, if uneasy, allies during the war to defeat Hitler. But in victory, that dynamic fractured, setting the most powerful winners of the war against each other. It wasn't just that they were the big kids left standing after the war. The tension broke out because the West operated under a capitalist system where the economy is based on private property rights and where the wealthy have a strong degree of power. 
The Soviet Union was based on communism, where personal property is heavily limited and the state controls almost everything. As communism calls for the state to seize private land and assets, this system was seen as a huge threat to Western money interests and existing business relationships. And the Soviet Union's harshly repressive authoritarian system was seen as a threat to Western democracies. Then, in 1947, after the Soviet Union had taken control of much of Eastern Europe, President Harry Truman said that preventing the worldwide spread of communism was America's top foreign policy goal. This is no more than a frank recognition that totalitarian regimes imposed upon free peoples by direct or indirect aggression undermine the foundations of international peace and hence the security of the United States. The fact that both sides were armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons and that their use would obliterate all life on Earth kept the U.S. and Russia from directly fighting each other. So when wars did break out, they were what's known as proxy wars, where one side would try to install its system of government in a smaller, non-nuclear armed nation and the other side would try to stop them. Okay, so when Reagan's administration starts in 1981, he ramps up America's Cold War foreign policy and has the CIA create a right-wing rebel group in Nicaragua called the Contras. They called themselves Contras because the word revolutionary had like a kind of left-wing implication and they didn't want that branding. So they claimed they were counter-revolutionaries. So Contras, get it? Okay. Then in 1984, Congress outlaws the White House from giving aid to right-wing Contra rebels. Our story takes place the following year, 1985. So if the Reagan administration is still working with Cubans in Miami to ship guns to Nicaragua, it's the administration that's breaking the law. Reagan even acknowledged that at this point, it would be illegal for him to overthrow the left-wing Sandinista government in Nicaragua by supporting the Contra rebels. Yes. The United States want that government replaced? No, because that would be violating the law. And he used the word doing. This wasn't past tense. He was putting himself into an ongoing criminal conspiracy of a huge number of people to export arms illegally into a war, violating more statutes that I could count. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, one crime is all you're charged with Perhaps you shouldn't be telling me that you're a serial criminal involved in arms trafficking. But he lays out these papers, and he says that he just happened to have one machine gun in his house. He had been asked to get the gun by Mr. Cotin, a fellow Contra freedom fighter supporter. Mr. Garcia added the element that he thought maybe his problems had originated because he didn't want to go along with a harebrained scheme to assassinate the U.S. ambassador in Costa Rica and blame it on the Sandinistas. And remember, the Sandinistas are the members of the left-wing government that has recently taken power in Nicaragua. And that a man who had been staying at his house, Major Sam, had left suddenly, but had left all his possessions including all the documents that would prove that this person was also part of this network, as he called it, of arms suppliers to the Nicaraguan Contras. And the very first thing I did as he left, I see these papers and scribblings on notepads, Colonel Douglas Monarchik. So I call up Colonel Douglas Monarchik, whatever. The phone rings. 
and it's answered National Security Council. And we're all cut up from where we started. Now, the National Security Council is a group of the president's closest advisors and chief implementers of strategy relating to foreign policy and national security. It, to me, signaled that it wasn't just a single machine gun and that I did need to pay attention. And he wasn't going to let me not pay attention. So I was intrigued. He hooked me, and I wanted to make sense of it. And but for the documents, I probably would have laughed it off. And I immediately then went over to interview a man who he claimed to be involved with all of the arms shipments. And it was a man named Jose Cotin who ran a store called the Broadway Boutique. And this was a store a couple blocks from the federal courthouse that when you looked in the window, it looked like a lingerie shop, but it was a gun store on top of a lingerie shop. But that was Miami. And so I went and talked to the man who owned it, Mr. Cotin, and he readily, yes, we're, of course, we're all supporting the freedom fighters. This is from an interview where Mr. Jose Coutin discusses the Contra operation. Our goal was to have a Cuban army, a Cuban representation in the war. So, Mr. Coutin affirmed that, in fact, Mr. Garcia was part of a movement helping the freedom fighters. They were working with the Contra leaders, and they, in fact, were supplying weapons and food and clothes to the Contras, and they were flying it into Central America right out of public airports in South Florida. Now, you might be asking yourself, why would Cubans in Miami even care about Nicaragua? And what does that have to do with the CIA? Well, to answer that, we need to go back to Cuba in the 1950s. During this period, Cuba is known for fruit and sugar production and as a vacation spot for wealthy Americans. The country is run by Batista, an American-backed dictator until 1959, when Fidel Castro overthrows him in a left-wing revolution. Violence and chaos break out on the streets of Havana as the revolution topples the government. Those suspected of loyalties to the Batista regime were targeted with rough treatment. Finally, Dr. Fidel Castro entered the city and took control. All CIA Director Alan Dulles can do is watch in terror as Cuba, a reliable ally 60 miles off the coast of Florida, falls to a leftist revolution, potentially becoming a Soviet satellite state. Many right-wing Cubans flee to America, and more specifically, Miami. As Kennedy comes into office in 1961, Dulles presents him with a plan he says is already underway to arm and train thousands of right-wing Cuban exiles in Miami. These exiles, with American air support, plan to invade Cuba, foment a popular revolution, and take the country over. In Miami, Cuban exiles in training for a return to their homeland, a citizen's army preparing to fight their way home. Kennedy approves a scaled-down version of the plan known as the Bay of Pigs invasion, which fails horribly. More than 100 of the Miami-trained Cubans are killed, and more than 1,000 are captured. The White House hopes they can deny any involvement with the embarrassing defeat, but the CIA's hand is quickly revealed. One of the big questions, of course, was the role played by the United States government itself. We've repeatedly insisted, that is, the government has, that no American forces were involved. 
Well, it's unmistakably clear, Walter, from all the evidence available, no matter how hard you try to fight it off, that the CIA planned this operation. It was the CIA that established the Revolutionary Council. So the CIA starts in 1947, the same year as the beginning of the Cold War, and part of the reason the agency is founded is to give the U.S. president plausible deniability when it comes to covert actions. Now, after the Bay of Pigs, these actions have blown up in the president's face. Soon, Alan Dulles is fired as CIA director, and Cuba declares itself communist, forming an alliance with the Soviet Union. The Kennedy administration and the CIA then launch Operation Mongoose, a long-running plan to remove Castro and disrupt his administration. The Kennedy administration claimed Operation Mongoose was the top priority of the U.S. government, and at the time, it was the CIA's largest active covert operation. Mongoose targeted and infiltrated the South Florida Cuban community. For Mongoose, the CIA recruits many of the same Miami Cubans they trained for the Bay of Pigs invasion. The CIA gives them resources and front companies from which to run operations. The CIA continued to use this well-trained army of Cuban exiles for Operation Mongoose. Soon thousands more joined their ranks. The CIA provided them with their own navy and front companies from which to run their operations. This is former CIA director Richard Helms. Bobby Kennedy was sort of in charge of the whole thing. Was, what are you doing to get rid of those fellows? What are you doing to cause the landing and blow up that refinery and so forth? Cubans in Miami largely come to see themselves as the frontline soldiers in the war against communism in Cuba or anywhere else. And in this case, the front line is Nicaragua. So the question for me was, well, how does that intersect with Mr. Garcia and a particular machine gun? And how would I defend someone possessing a machine gun in that environment? Because my caseload was increasing exponentially. By then, I probably had half a dozen bank robbers, con men, drug smugglers. I mean, and this was to be my very first trial. And everyone in the office advised me, dump it. Get him a plea bargain. There's no sense in trying to make sense of a case that's a loser. He was found possessing a machine gun. He will go to prison. Get him a lower sentence. And it was logical. We were on a conveyor belt. This is David Tucker again, Mattis's friend and fellow public defender in Miami. We both got involved in almost identical cases. Clients who were charged with possession of unlicensed machine guns. As you know, in this country, we can have a machine gun. We just need a license for it. I can't really disclose what my client said to me. However, there were individuals who were being arrested for these weapons charges and stating that they were working for the CIA. And they didn't understand why it is that they were being prosecuted. Investigators have taken testimony from a key witness who alleges that an active-duty CIA officer, as well as a high-ranking customs official, were involved in the drug ring the police are moving on now. This may be only the tip of the iceberg. My client pled guilty. John's client also said something similar, and he took that information and began his own investigation into what was going on. This was way prior to anyone knowing anything. I'm sorry, I didn't do it. John's character is just stronger than anything I've ever experienced in my life. Mr. Garcia insisted he was going to go to trial. He wanted to be vindicated. 
And of course, he couldn't afford to go to jail because he was a jailer. He would lose his, of course, lose his job and would never be able to work again as a convicted felon. So he was looking at the pragmatic end of it, the ideological end of it, and the sense that the United States government would not betray him. Preparing for the trial, I'm searching around for a defense. Uh, there wasn't a good alibi. There was no real defense, but I stumbled upon what was called the Watergate defense. Okay, so this is as good a time as any to discuss Watergate. You're probably familiar with the scandal, but if you're not, in brief, as President Nixon runs for re-election in 1972, he has an entire operation which includes CIA officers dedicated to monitoring and sabotaging his political enemies. To harass opponents, the Nixon White House had set up a secret team called the Plumbers. They bugged phones, opened mail, and burglarized the president's critics. And this is the chair of the Senate Watergate Committee, Sam Irvin. Congress is the only one that's got legislative power, and I don't know anything, any law that gave the president the power to set it himself up what some people have called the secret police, namely the plumbers. The operation gets exposed after some of its members get arrested breaking into the Watergate Hotel to bug the Democratic National Committee. When President Nixon is implicated in covering up the operation, he steps down to avoid impeachment and forced removal. Watergate has a direct effect on the Miami Cuban community. While many of the Watergate burglars are former CIA, a few are Miami Cubans. And remember how Operation Mongoose set up a bunch of CIA front companies in Miami run by right-wing Miami Cubans? Well, once the Miami Cuban role in Watergate is revealed, a lot of those operations get shut down. This is an interview with drug cartel money launderer Ramon Million Rodriguez. After Watergate, the group in Miami was disbanded. They were just given the assets. For instance, if you were running a print shop, you kept the print shop. If you were, if you had a boat, you just kept the boats. And then that was really the starting off point where you got some well-trained people into the drug business. So our story takes place in 1985, just a little over a decade after a president was taken down for an illegal covert operation using the CIA in Miami Cubans. And Mattis is hoping to use the same defense the burglars used in Watergate. So the Watergate burglars would have had a defense based on their belief that they were working on behalf of the United States government. It didn't work for them, nor did it work for Jesus Garcia. Mr. Garcia, against my advice, took the stand and laid out his story. And it was ridiculed by the prosecutor. The jury was not out long, and Mr. Garcia was convicted. I was devastated. I took it personally, of course. It was my fault, and I couldn't do anything about it. Tiny little holding cell. It just, and... His wife is weeping. It was, it was horrible. And it was not something I could walk away from. He was immediately put into handcuffs and taken away. And as I walked out of the courtroom with him into the holding cell, he turned to me and said, if I go down for one gun, they all go down. And... 
that is when he sat down with me in the holding cell and he said, now I'm going to tell them everything. The them being the FBI. And I said, do you want to go down that path? And he said, Papa, I'll talk about all of them, but I'm not going to talk about the cocaine. And I didn't even have to know why he wasn't going to talk about the cocaine. If you want to stay alive, you just don't talk about cocaine. So I called the FBI agents and they came over and we sat with Mr. Garcia, by now transferred down to the prison, as he walked them through A to Z of the entire illegal network and through the entire afternoon, the FBI agent sat there nodding knowingly. And occasionally they would say, oh yeah, we already know him for X, Y, or Z crime. They knew all of the characters he knew. So that was the first time I became totally aware that the FBI knew it all. So, to me, that was a vote of confidence in Mr. Garcia's truthfulness and his knowledge base. And in my mind, if he's going to be sentenced for one gun and he provides information about an entire arms network, that should get him a lot of mitigation when it comes time for sentencing in front of a federal judge. Should I have been more cynical? Yeah, I should have been. Should I have challenged the agents at that moment? I didn't. Um, but again, I wasn't out looking to see a global picture. I was hoping to get a guy out of jail, pure and simple. But Mattis doesn't hear back from the FBI. As Jesus sits in jail, Mattis tries to contact anyone in law enforcement to look at his case, but no one seems interested, and Mattis doesn't understand why. You know, this had consumed me. What had happened to him across the board was unfair and unjust, and I was outraged. This had been my very first criminal trial, and I had fallen on my face. I went home for Christmas, and my family's in Massachusetts, and so I tell them, and my sister said, gee, you ought to tell this story to my dear friend, Phil was his name. Phil had started a couple high-tech software companies and was somewhat retired, but well, well off. So in his house, I tell him this story, and he looked at it through the frame of politics, and he said, well, this is something that the United States Senate needs to do something about, and we just elected John Kerry. I'm going to call his office tomorrow. And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is John Kerry, the former Secretary of State. But as of Christmas 1985, he's just a junior senator less than a year into his first term. Despite his lack of seniority, 
Kerry is a member of the powerful Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, giving him the ability to press the Reagan administration on the Contra War. Jonathan Weiner, who we're about to hear from, worked on Senator Kerry's staff in 1985. With a background in investigative journalism and law, Weiner started as legal counsel for John Kerry back when he was the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. So, you know, another lawyer. When Kerry ran for Senate, Weiner joined the campaign, doing opposition research, digging up dirt on Kerry's political opponents. When Kerry won, Weiner joined his staff, again as legal counsel. A few weeks after he was elected, I got a call from a Vietnam vet named Dean Metcalf, who said there's all this weird stuff going on here in Honduras and Costa Rica, gun running and drug trafficking. And at the time, Congress had voted to prevent the White House from funding the Contras. I put it in the, oh, that's very interesting, but um, at this point I was about 30 years old. I didn't know where the bathrooms were. 10 or 11 months later, John Mattis' sister Sarah, who I'd gotten to know during the campaign when she'd been involved in the nuclear freeze movement, contacted us about this weird case that her brother had run into in Miami. The second time I heard about exactly this stuff, and Mattis showed me some drawings left by somebody his client had met with, which showed numbers to the White House, references to people in Vice President Bush's office. So it was like a perfect fit, completely different setting, well, same information. So I wound up contacting people in the House of Representatives and a variety of other people who were older and more experienced than I was. And they said, no, nah, we looked into all of it and none of it's true. I mean, I had been in town one year, Carrie had been in town one year. We lacked the requisite experience. The people who had the experience of telling us none of it was true. Kerry had a choice to make. He could have done what 99 out of 100 senators would do. That's very interesting. You know, I'm new here in Washington. I want to focus on some arms control issues. Later on, we'll do investigations when I've got a seniority and staff. Instead, he said, these allegations are too important to be ignored. You all do what you can to investigate them. But that's what he did. And he did it pretty much immediately after we came to him with the allegations. Kerry's then chief of staff, Ron Rosenbluth, his senior foreign policy guy who'd worked at the State Department, Dick McCall, John Mattis, the guy out in the field who was investigating all this stuff, and me, that was the team. So that's how it began. So that was the start of what we might call the Kerry investigation. As a result of the information brought to him last year, Senator John Kerry ordered his staff to investigate the private groups and individuals known or suspected of providing aid to the Contras. We became aware of it through individuals who came to my office, really articulated an enormous web that was being spun to provide aid to the Contras. Before we go, there's something I want you to keep in mind. When the U.S. government wants to go to war or support a resistance movement, there are many ways that can shake out. Every conflict is its own situation. In some conflicts, like America's invasion of Iraq, war is officially declared by congressional vote. In other situations, like Vietnam, the war might not be officially declared, but Congress still agrees to fund it. Aside from those, there's a third category. A category of war that has to be hidden from Congress and the American people. This is the story of such an operation. A secret and illegal war being conducted by the White House. I'm Jack Bryan. And this has been John Cryer. Join us next time for more Lawyers, Guns, and Money. We are looking at allegations of drug running, 
gun smuggling, violations of the Neutrality Act, conspiracy to commit a murder and murder itself. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. It was like, get the hell out of there, are you crazy? They're gonna kill you, this is the CIA. After the guns were unloaded, was something loaded into the airplane? Coke. Cocaine. Estimated around 500 kilos. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. And they were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. If you want to listen to the next episode ad-free right now, go to lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. Sign up and also hear bonus episodes where we dive deeper into Mattis' story. You'll hear how, as a young political radical, a meeting with one of the world's most famous rock stars helped put him on the FBI's radar. You'll also hear Mattis's wild stories from Miami in the early 1980s and about a case so strange that you'll never look at manatees the same way again. Sign up now at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. Lawyers, Guns, and Money is a Discount Sushi and Bunker Crew Media production in association with MSW Media. It was produced by John Cryer and Jack Bryan. It was written and edited by Jack Bryan. Copyright 2023. Due to licensing constraints, a couple of the archive clips in this episode are reproductions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again on the next episode of Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Enjoy.